Hi, everyone, and thank you for tuning in to the 218th episode of Awards Chatter, the Hollywood Reporter's Awards podcast. I'm the host, Scott Feinberg, and my guest today is one of the most likable and reliably good actors in the business, and he has been for nearly 40 years. In the 1980s, he was a child star whose face was plastered on the bedroom walls of young girls across America. Then, after largely fading from the scene in the 1990s, he reemerged in the first decade of the 2000s as an adult, and specifically as the industry's go-to straight man, winning acclaim for his work on screens big and small, starting with his portrayal of Michael Bluth, the only sane member of a big family of nutjobs, on Arrested Development which aired on Fox for three seasons, spanning 2003 through 2006, and was awarded the Best Comedy Series Emmy in 2004, and for which he took home the Best Actor in a Musical or Comedy Series Golden Globe in 2005. Now, in 2018, he is poised to land Best Actor Emmy nominations for two different shows, both of which hail from Netflix. One is the rookie drama series Ozark, which he also executive produced, and four of the ten episodes of which he also directed. And he already has received Best Actor Golden Globe and SAG Award nominations for his work on that show. The second is the aforementioned Arrested Development, which was revived at Netflix in 2013 and returns to the streaming service on May 29th. He has previously received a total of two Emmy, two SAG, and two Golden Globe nominations for his work on that show, including the one that I already mentioned resulted in a Golden Globe win. Over the course of our conversation, Bateman and I discuss all of the above, plus much more. But first, I was joined at the offices of The Hollywood Reporter by Booth Moore, THR's style and fashion news director. Everybody seems to be talking about style and fashion these days in connection with May 7th's Met Gala, the ongoing Cannes Film Festival, Saturday's Royal Wedding, and the list goes on. This is not an area that I can claim to know that much about, so it's a treat to be able to bring in someone who can. Booth, thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. Well, Let's touch on each of these big three events that I just mentioned, if we can. Let's start with the Met Gala. I enjoyed Andrew Rossi's doc on that a few years ago called The First Monday in May, which sort of shows just how much work goes into this each year. It's a fundraiser for the Costume Institute in New York City. It's chaired by Vogue editor Anna Wintour. It always has a theme. What was this year's theme? <laughs> it was Heavenly Bodies, which is pegged to their big exhibition, which is a showcase for how Catholicism has affected fashion. So the dress code was actually Sunday Best, which was kind of fun. And there were like a bazillion different interpretations. And what I really love about the event is it's really sort of like the perfect combination of couture and costume party, you know? <laughs> so yeah, so really I think... I think everyone, you know, there's a million touch points that you can kind of be drawn into it. The thing that I've never fully understood about this is some people wear things that look like something that your average Joe would aspire to wear to something nice. Other people show up, as Sarah Jessica Parker did this year, with the nativity scene on her head. How do you find the balance between adhering to the theme and actually wearing something that is practical? <laughs> <laughs> I think this is the place where you can really throw practicality out of the window. I mean, this is this is the event that has stars arriving, you know, in their own vans because they can't <laughs> they literally can't sit down in their gowns. So right. I think it's kind of it, it's the opportunity to go completely over the top, but also to kind of make a political statement, you know, perhaps. Mm -hmm. And and that's something I think we've been seeing more and more on the red carpets everywhere. And certainly it was it happened at the Met Gala. If you look at Rihanna dressing as 
as a female pope. I mean, obviously, <laughs> in the Catholic Church, we would never see a female right, pope. Right. So so that was quite a statement. And Lena Waithe wearing a rainbow flag. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, there's there's ways that you can kind of, even, even Amal Clooney's outfit was a bit of a statement. So And that actually pissed off Tom Ford, right? Because what was the story <laughs> there? She was supposed to wear Tom Ford, and then she showed up in something else? She was supposed to wear Tom Ford. He had made a gown for her that was, I guess, evocative of stained glass. And to his surprise, if the story is to be believed, instead she came out in this sort of metallic, tinfoily bustier over pants that was actually by a British designer named Richard Quinn. And then she changed into his dress inside in the gift shop. And I guess he wasn't too pleased about that. But, you know, I mean, interestingly, I think the point maybe that she was trying to make was to support this young designer, Richard Quinn, Mm -hmm. who, you know, British fashion has been somewhat challenged recently because of of Brexit and and the fallout of that. And here's a guy who literally was in his second season and he had the Queen attend his show. It was the first fashion show that she'd ever been to in February. And how did he get her to show up? Well, she gave uh, an award to him. Uh, It was the first fashion award in her name. And so he received it. She she came to the show to give it to him. And Amal Clooney decided to wear his design on sort of the biggest red carpet on the international fashion stage, I guess, aside from Cannes. Yeah. Well, (laughs) and we'll come to that in a second. But just a follow up about bouncing off of Amal Clooney here. So she was an honorary event day chair this year. That's sort of along with Rihanna and Donatella Versace. So she was going to be there no matter who she was wearing. But how does it work? You're invited as an individual or you're invited by a fashion house that buys a table there or how? Because a lot of money is spent on this thing. Yeah, the the tables cost about $750,000. And so design houses take them and then they invite all the guests to sit with them. But the thing is, is that Anna Wintour approves every outfit. It is involved in in choosing it. So every uh, outfit that even if it's so a designer buys a table for $750,000 and presumably to then dress their table guests in their outfit, right. but that still has to be approved by Anna Wintour? That's still, Vogue is still involved in, yeah, <laughs> in, in dressing absolutely everyone. So it's it's a Vogue show, but Anna went on to Stephen Colbert and said that she was surprised that Amal changed in the gift shop. So <laughs> so maybe Amal did take, take matters into her own hands as right. far as deciding what she was going to wear out front. Who knows? <laughs> so whose outfit maybe a male and a female, most impressed you at this year's Met Gala? <laughs> I mean, I, I already said I thought Rihanna was like, I loved that sort of thumb in the eye mm-hmm. to mm-hmm. <laughs> that outfit. But, you know, there were lots of incredible Versace creations that sort of ran the gamut from a Joan of Arc look that I believe was worn by... Is that worn by Zendaya? To something that was an elaborate ball gown that uh, Blake Lively wore. Mm -hmm. So, you know, that was kind of an incredible display of the range of the House of Versace. You had angel wings on Katy Perry. (laughs) (laughs) There was like just nutty stuff as well. But, you know, that's what made it fun to, to look at and to write about. And I think everyone kind of could somehow, you know, had the theme would register with them in some way because this was about what you're reverent about right. and something that looks holy. As far as the men go, you know, Chadwick Boseman looked amazing. I've really liked his style lately. I think he, you know, kind of was rocking this sort of Elvis type mm-hmm. look that was like half religious, half king of pop. And, you know, even Donald Glover, I think, has been stepping up his game. And, and I loved his his velvet, his lavender velvet suit and white 
loafers. So will Gucci. we ever see any of these outfits again, or where do they go? Do they go to the Costume Institute, or do they go back to the designer? I can't imagine somebody just showing up at another event wearing wings or whatever they, you know, people <laughs> wore to this. No, that's actually a great point. You could have a whole exhibition of just what people have worn to the Met Gala. <laughs> right? I mean, maybe that should be part of the term. Exactly. If you want to come, you got to let us borrow it. Yes. Usually on red carpet looks go back to the designers, even in the case of celebrities, uh, an Oscars red carpet and, and all that. So usually they go back into the designer's archives. Interesting. Okay. Well, let's talk about Cannes. This is still going on in the <laughs> south of France. The most famous film festival in the world spans 11 days. Most people who are there cycle in and out in just a handful of days, but the jurors are there from beginning to end. And this year, there were quite a few female jurors, including the jury chair, Kate Blanchett, Ava DuVernay, and Kristen Stewart. It was a, it's been the year of women there. They've pointed out, I think there were 82 females who stood on the steps leading up to the Palais to, in a way, symbolically note that only 82 women have had films that they directed at Cannes over its history. But it's a fact of life, I think, that fashion at Cannes demands more of women than men, since men are basically just tuxing it up every night. <laughs> but these these women, particularly the jurors, they must have to show up with boatloads of outfits because they have a different look every night. What must it be like for somebody like Kate Blanchett, who's got a, you know, sort of is expected to show up every night looking good? Yeah, I, I mean, for if you're lucky, like Kate, I, I spoke to her stylist, Elizabeth Stewart, who actually is there with her. So she is keeping track of all the different looks and everything that goes with them or whatever. But sometimes Elizabeth has sent stars on their own. And, you know, you just have to have everything in clear wardrobe bags. And, you know, she does PDFs of every outfit that she gives to female stars so they can keep track of what to wear when and what goes with it. But yeah, it really is. It's a lot to keep track of. Of. And I think Elizabeth said that they were working on somewhere between 20 and 30 looks wow. uh, for Kate. So wow. and there is, you know, there is a little bit of disparity on on how much <laughs> the women have to, to deal with looking completely different to everything they go to. And the men, I mean, they could easily wear the same tuxedo and who would notice? Right. 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 <laughs> well, and I actually thought it was very refreshing that Kate Blanchett said something. Maybe it was even the opening night of Can that she rewore a dress that she had worn to a previous event, a high profile event. And she basically said what I think a lot of people think out in the real world, which is that, you know, when you've got such a beautiful outfit, it's ridiculous to never wear it again because you've worn it once years ago. What was the story there? Because that's actually very unusual, right? Yeah, it is. When I spoke to Elizabeth, she said that they were really, that she and Kate really thought about her wardrobe and wanted it to be reflective of current topics that people are talking about, not only in fashion, but in Hollywood. So they wanted to put a focus on female designers. They wanted to put a focus on sustainability. And in the name of sustainability, they decided to have her rewear this Giorgio Armani dress that she had worn to the SAG Awards in 2014. And it's an absolutely beautiful black lace gown. And yeah, I mean, it looked as great now as it did then. And I guess it was to prove the point that if you do have something beautiful, why not rewear it? She's also been wearing a lot of Chopard jewelry and Chopard mm. has some, some dedication to sustainability with the fair mining and things like that. Interesting. Well, Ken is very strict about a lot of things this year. They've implemented a no selfie ban on their red carpet. They also, for you know, as far back as they've existed, I think, have required men to be black tie on the red carpet. The only person who was ever the exception to that rule was Pierre Rassant, this film insider who who actually just 
died within the last month, he could show up in a sweater or whatever, and they didn't give him a hard time, from what I understand. But women, the the latest restriction that they've had to deal with at Cannes was is that they are not supposed to wear flats on the red carpet. This rule was sort of disregarded, I guess, for the first time in 2016 by Julia Roberts. I, there's a kind of now iconic photo of her with her heels in her hand going up to Terry Fremont, the guy who runs it, on the red carpet. And because she's Julia Roberts, I don't think they're going to screw with her. It's not like, sorry, you can't come in. And actually this year, this happened again with Kristen Stewart. It, it Was this just because she actually was uncomfortable? Or do you think there was a point trying to be made here about this treatment of women? I'm, I mean, I'm sure she it, the heels looked like they may have been uncomfortable, but <laughs> I think she was trying to make a, a point, too. And, you know, it's, again, to, to your question about female jurors, I mean, being there for 20 days and wearing heels for 20 days straight mm-hmm. to events, I mean, it's that is like torture. So, you know, I think this this rule is absolutely crazy and that women are right to to protest it. And I think it was, you know, it was definitely a popular video to see her taking off her shoes and just sort of walking right up there in bare feet and that they should maybe sort of stop trying to to legislate right. what uh, people wear and or legislate taste as as Elizabeth Stewart puts it. Yes. When I, when well, I interviewed her. No, it's a, it's I feel like that rule will will not last much long. I can't last for much longer in the current climate. But well, so again, I guess let's let's talk about the big winner or loser out of Ken. I, I will just say I'm not all that cognizant about these things, but I certainly did notice Kendall Jenner's outfit this year. I don't even know why she was at the festival, but she certainly stood out. So if you want to say anything about that. Sure. I mean, I think, you know, she was maybe trying to make a bit of a point, too. You know, you could say uh, free the nipple, perhaps, was her yes. point. She has worn a couple of practically completely sheer outfits on the red carpets there. And you know, I think Cannes really also a playground for models. It, you know, it has been certainly traditionally over the years. And so it's not that surprising to see her there. Certainly there are a lot of fashion brands there doing business and having parties and so on. So you're not surprising that she would sort of be representing her brand there as well. Mm-hmm. And I think, you know, she just kind of said, hey, who's going to mess with me? I, <laughs> I can step out and do this. And, and you know, she actually looked quite beautiful yeah. in both dresses. And and again, you think, you know, this is the south of France where women go topless on the beach, yeah, right? It's, so. a, it's a synonymous <laughs> with Cannes. Exactly. So. so what's the problem? Right, right. <laughs> All right. Royal wedding time. Harry and Meghan. Saturday. Is dad coming or isn't he? <laughs> Doesn't look like it. Is Megan actually going to become a princess? No, she's a duchess, but who's counting? Do I care about any of this? No, but a lot of other people do. So so I guess all of that is to ask you, what should those people who do give a damn about any of this be looking for in terms of fashion at this event? Who might be the Pippa Middleton of this cycle? Somebody, you know, that surprises us and steals the scene from the stars. What will you be looking for? I, I know that's a lot of questions, but basically <laughs> give us a preview of what's coming on Saturday. Well, it's actually a really interesting story for Hollywood because, you know, here's this Hollywood starlet who's, you know, marrying into the royal family. So we're going to be looking to see how she represents herself and her own personality and what she chooses to wear. She's an American. She's biracial. You know, will any of her choices reflect that? Mm -hmm. I mean, people, you know, they like to take bets on everything and people are betting on who will design her gown. And right now, I think the forerunner is Ralph and Russo, which is a couture house that's actually relatively young that's based in London 
formed in 2007 and has a female designer who is notable because she was the first person, the first Brit in 100 years to be invited to show during Paris Couture. So she's dressed a ton of celebrities, including Angelina Jolie, Lupita Nyong'o, etc. And she's really the forerunner right now to do the gown. But, you know, she could also go with Burberry. Um, Christopher Bailey, who's mm-hmm. the outgoing designer there, just showed his last collection was very pointedly a message about LGBTQ. And so she, you know, Meghan Markle is also interested in supporting those rights and could go with him. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, whoever she chooses, there will be sort of some sort of message in it. And she's expected to go with someone who's British in some way, because again, it's a big booster to the British fashion industry. Right. And then I think we'll also be looking for any nods to Princess Diana. Uh-huh. You know, certainly the engagement ring was a nod to her because there's this enormous diamond from Botswana, but then there's also diamond that, you know, belonged to Princess Diana. So, mm-hmm. you know, there could be a nod to her American heritage in something that she wears. People will be looking at what tiara she wears. Right. So, I mean, absolutely every little detail will be dissected. And, you know, I think they've already made some interesting choices about their ceremony with, you know, who the, the preacher that they're having who's American mm-hmm. and Elton John. And, you know, so I think it'll be interesting to watch. As far as who will be the Pippa Middleton, she doesn't have a maid of honor. So there won't be a literal Pippa Middleton, but certainly (laughs) some sort of pop culture star will emerge from this. Inevitably. Inevitably. I'm just sorry that we won't get to see what what dad would have worn, but. uh, (laughs) I know. I know. (laughs) I feel like he will hopefully be tweeting or something from. um... Yeah. Or or auctioning off tweets. (laughs) Yes. (laughs) Exactly. Uh, All right. So on a more serious note, I want to talk about Georgina Chapman. This is the wife of Harvey Weinstein and the mother of two young children that she had with him, as well as the co-founder with Karen Craig of the high-end women's wear brand Marquesa. She is the subject of a new profile in Vogue, which was written by Jonathan Van Meter and features photographs by none other than Annie Leibovitz. And it is causing for lack of a better phrase, all sorts of shit, I guess because the article and she in it suggests that she was quote-unquote naive and had no idea that Harvey was doing the sorts of things that he was doing. I do personally think it's ridiculous to blame a wife for a husband's behavior, but this gets tricky because of the perception, at least, that Harvey is the hidden hand behind Marquesa, and so people are now having their knives out for for Marquesa, which was established in 2004, the same year that Georgina Chapman met Harvey Weinstein. Would Marquesa be the massive and really, from my understanding, very significant brand that it is without Harvey Weinstein? I doubt that it would without his Hollywood connections. But I I echo what you say and that, you know, you can't really blame a wife for a husband's actions. I think that it is pretty well documented that he was involved in getting, you know, actresses he was working with to wear the brand. I mean, I've talked to people who worked at Miramax in New York back in the day and talked about sort of dresses being shuttled around the city and, you know, him really wanting to know, keep tabs on who was wearing what and when it was going to happen in this kind Kind of a thing. So, but I think there's a leap to then how that is involved with any alleged, you know, sexual harassment or sexual abuse. I think his sort of strong arm tactics in the industry were fairly well known, you know, both sort of in the entertainment side of things and in fashion. But but again, that that's not necessarily related to these these 
alleged crimes that we're talking right. about. Right, and it sounds like, and you know, I'll, I'll ask you because you know, but it sounds like from the Vogue article that whether or not he was there, you know, was driving the establishment of Marquesa, it actually did grow to become a brand that can stand on its own and is worthy of being worn to major events on red carpets. But if Harvey Weinstein and Georgina Chapman's relationship is severed, not just romantically, but also professionally, is there any reason why Marquesa wouldn't continue to deserve to be in the elite tier of of brands? I don't think so. I mean, the brand was a little bit on the wane before the Harvey allegations came out, before the scandal broke. At its height, they would have sometimes six to eight people wearing it on Golden Globes night or Academy Awards night. And it really sort of dwindled down to maybe one person. Mm -hmm. But certainly there were lots of there are lots of licensed brands that they also have a lower price brand. They had a, a jewelry collaboration, accessories, those kinds of things. So the brand did grow beyond its presence on the red carpet and also the whole bridal business, which, you know, I've talked to people who own bridal salons and they say that sales have not dropped off at all. You know, and I think there's a disconnect within a lot of customers' minds. They don't even really know that the brand Marquesa, the word Marquesa is associated with Harvey Weinstein. It's probably nice that she's probably very thankful today that she didn't change her name to Georgina (laughs) Weinstein. (laughs) Exactly, exactly. So, you know, but it was an interesting sort of orchestrated campaign by Vogue to get this brand back on track, sort of having the profile come out, coupled with Scarlett Johansson wearing the brand, being the first A-lister to do so on the red carpet at the Met Gala. I want to ask you about that because, yeah. I mean, to me, I, I again, with very limited knowledge of fashion, it just actually, the my references often come from the movies. And all I could think about when I saw that Scarlett Johansson had done this, really the first person to wear it at a prominent event since the Harvey stuff came out. I mean, it was missing entirely from the Oscars this year because people just didn't know what to, why court controversy. But it was a pretty bold thing for Scarlett to to wear that. And I'm thinking, it brings me back to Jezebel where Betty Davis shows up in that, even though it's black and white, we know it's a red dress at an event where you're only supposed to wear white if you're a, an unmarried woman. So anyway, I just, it felt like that kind of a statement for, for Scarlett Johansson, who's can wear anybody she wants, to wear Marquesa, do you, do you have any reason to believe that it was intended as a statement or she just liked the dress? No, I'm sure it was intended as a statement and it was probably part of the the deal to get the profile in Vogue to have an A-lister wear it at the Met Gala. I think also, yeah, there was lots of symbolism in that dress. You know, her name is Scarlett Johansson, yeah. Scarlett Letter. You know, the dress was was tinged red, you know, I, I think. And, and the theme was was religion and sort of thinking about redemption and, and that kind of thing. I, I think it was a very pointed statement. But, you know, even just in the few days after that, people are sort of still reticent to talk about it. I mean, stylists don't want to be quoted about Marquesa. There's still this this attitude in Hollywood, I think, that people are just kind of waiting to see because they don't want their words or attentions to be twisted. And, you know, they don't want to somehow seem like they're not supporting Time's Up or they're not supporting women who are coming forward about sexual abuse allegations. So it's still a very loaded topic. I guess the, the what it may come down to is just how much Georgina Chapman herself is willing to totally throw Harvey overboard at the moment. In this article itself, she acknowledges they're still in touch, which is understandable. They have children together and, you know, they're, I guess, probably working on a divorce. But unless and until there's a total severance there, it may remain in purgatory. And that's tough when you have 80 people working for you, as she apparently does. But it will be interesting to follow. And thank you for humoring a dilettante on this subject today. Booth Moore, I appreciate (laughs) it. Anytime. Thank you. And now for my interview with Jason Bateman. 
Over the course of our conversation at the offices of The Hollywood Reporter, the 49-year-old and I discussed a wide range of topics, among them. How Bateman began acting professionally at the age of just 10, wound up doing so rather quickly on major shows like Little House on the Prairie and Silver Spoons, and came to feel about how his work impacted his relationships with family and friends. What led to him directing for the first time at the age of just 18, making him the youngest person in the history of the Directors Guild of America to receive a directing credit and planting the seeds for his desire to return to directing years later? Why he largely disappeared from the public's consciousness once he hit his 20s and the sometimes problematic ways in which he handled that dry period in his career? How his career came back from the dead, in a sense, thanks to Arrested Development, and how he came to accept and embrace his new identity as a straight man in comedies of all sorts. Why he is particularly proud of Ozark, every element of which has his fingerprints all over it, from its look to its tone to the fact that his character, a middle-class financial advisor who gets into trouble with a Mexican drug cartel for which he agreed to launder money, appears in virtually every scene of the show, plus much more. So without further ado, let's go to that conversation. Jason, thank you so much for joining us. Appreciate it. My pleasure. We always begin the same way. Just where were you born and raised? What did your folks I do thought for it was a living? Be a quick prayer. No? <laughs> I was born in Rye, New York, and I lived there till I was two. I lived in Boston till I was four. I lived in Salt Lake City till I was seven. And then I've been living in L.A. ever since. Mm -hmm. I'm now 49. My parents are both still living. Mm -hmm. Dad was an independent writer, director, producer Mm -hmm. and post-production sort of dude. Mm -hmm. My mom was a stewardess slash flight attendant. Mm -hmm. I think it was later to be termed for Pan Am for almost 30 years. Mm -hmm. I was reading about her. It sounds like she was you know, had to be just by the nature of the work out of the home half the time, right? Yeah. About every two weeks she was gone for a couple of weeks. Mm -hmm. And my dad doing that independent thing often had him either out of town or on set Mm -hmm. or down in the basement, you know, writing some spec script. So Justine and I, we had to sort of let ourselves in and cook ourselves dinner often not in a in a in, in a I don't want to paint a picture of neglect but <laughs> we were we were given a large amount of responsibility early on and yeah. I think it served me in that I wasn't overwhelmed with a lot of the accelerated responsibility and work you know when I was a little kid I think it it, it gave me a little head start yeah and we should note for anyone who who doesn't know Justine is your sister older by two years three years, three years. Yeah. Yeah. and she preceded you into the business she well uh, it's it seemed like like she did because it that, that family ties was so incredibly successful mm-hmm. but in reality I I'd, I'd started doing commercials for a year or two and then I was on little house in the prairie for a year and I think I was through silver spoons by the time she decided that in order to help her pay for hotel rooms in New York as a model, she uh-huh. was going back and forth with my mom or my dad, whoever was free, to do modeling work, she thought, well, uh, the, that commercial money looks pretty good. And, and so she went into acting about three years afterwards, I think, mm-hmm. and, and did two quick commercials. I think it was Wheaties and Dial Soap. <laughs> And then I think her third audition was Family Ties, and off she went. Yeah, yeah. I believe that 
that you started at the age of 10. And I just wonder what brought that about. And also, you know, as you look back at it, how does that happen? Is it your decision? Is it somebody encouraging you to do it? What What's the beginning for you? Yeah, I think in traditional households, you know, the dad takes the son out to the park and throws the ball. And then that kid, you know, throws the ball pretty good. And he thinks, well, I'm going to be a baseball player or a football player. And then and, and away they go. In my case, my dad took me to like these, you know, foreign film kind of art houses and like new art, you know, down yeah. here on, on Santa Monica. And, you know, I'd see these cool foreign films or I didn't know they were cool yet I was kind of pissed off I had to read all the <laughs> dialogue because they were all subtitled but that the seed was planted to to you know he'd show me what good acting is what bad acting is what good directing is what bad directing what what is directing and so uh, we had a neighbor that was my dad's age and he was an actor and he on his way to an audition one day saw me out in the driveway washing the car with my dad and he said hey jason you want to come with me and see how an audition goes and so my my the seed of interest had already been planted through my dad and i said sure so i went with this guy and and they were reading for the role of the son the same day and he he put these sides in my hand you know it's this uh, little piece of you know the, of the script of some dialogue that actors use to audition with mm-hmm. and he said just go in there and make it look like you know what you're doing that you were supposed to be here that they made some sort of mistake you know you're not on the <laughs> list so I went in there and read for it and I got this part and so I went home and told my dad you know hey I think I'm good at this let's take some pictures of me and see if I can get an agent and so that's kind of the way it started just sort of harmlessly and kind of as a hobby and you know, getting out from school earlier to go to auditions and stuff like that was was a lot of fun. That's mm-hmm. kind of the way I saw it. And, and I was a bit of a jackass when I was a kid and, and liked being able to go and shill for, you know, serials and, <laughs> and, and be some sort of a smart ass in TV shows and stuff like that. And I didn't really see it much as a career until, you know, I started to become... 15, 16. And you know. prior to that, was there, because you, you were getting, I guess, your first role that you mentioned with Little House on the Prairie as an orphan who mm-hmm. is brought into the Ingall family. Yeah. But when you're even now, so that's your, you're on TV now, have you, had you ever been subjected to an acting class or anything or it was just sort of natural stuff yeah it was just i i was uh, just naturally full of shit as a kid (laughs) i could really sort of pretend to be somebody else and and have no sort of remorse about fooling somebody yeah it was something that it just was just very comfortable for me and 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 remains comfortable knockwood and has consequently allowed me to observe other parts of the process yeah. such that, you know, I, I became interested in directing yes. and, and dealing with other departments. With Little House on the Prairie, that group of actors I know had been together for a while, probably for some of them back to Bonanza. Right? Yeah, for sure. How important, you know, do you think it was in terms of making you want to remain a part of this stuff to have the environment that you had with that? And I know I, I read that Michael Landon was somebody that was you know, you looked up to just what was that first big experience that probably set the tone for how you felt going forward, right? It did. Yeah, it was hugely important. And it did shape my perspective of a set and what it could be, what it should be. The fact that you can you can get a full call sheet shot without yelling and you can be kind and supportive and encouraging to not only the actors or, you know, even, even if they're little little kids, especially and but also to crew members. And, and that familial dynamic was ever present there, because, as you said, a lot of the, the cast and certainly a lot of the crew had been together 
for all of those years during Bonanza, and there was just a groove they were all in, and and I could have been exposed to a completely different and 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 in fact more typical environment, and that would have shaped the the guy I yeah. I sort of became, and when I was in a, in in you know privileged to be in a position of leadership, you know what kind of leader would I would I be? What right. what what was my example? And and Michael Landon was. You know, if memory serves, I mean, certainly if you go into a time machine and look at the way you saw things when you were 10, 11 years old, it, it might not hold up. But mm-hmm. as far as I remember, mm-hmm. that guy was, he was sort of the, the George Clooney of, of the day and that Cruz loved him and Cass loved him. And there was an ease and a comfort with what he was doing such that he was able to be a sense of, of, of energy and, and encouragement, positivity, you know, around yeah. the set. It was it was fun, uh, irrespective of the fact you were doing dramatic work. I guess it was about two years you were on that. And then pretty much it seems like right into the next thing. How did you go right into Silver Spoons where people of that day will very clearly remember Ricky Schroeder's best friend, sort of the bad boy? I think at that point, is that what made you the – Along with Charlie Sheen and Corey Heyman, some of these guys, you're the po- you're the guy on the posters of a lot of walls. Was that directly kind of as a result of that show, or when did that start to happen? You're talking about like that Teen Idol stuff. Yeah, when yeah, did that begin? I, well, I don't, I don't, I don't. I was never at the Corey Haim, Charlie Sheen, <laughs> Scott Bayo, you know, the rest of them. Even Ricky Schroeder. I mean, I, I was, I was, I was deep into the magazine. I don't think I was ever on the covers. <laughs> I'm sure I, I wouldn't have minded, but. Those dudes were hotter. Let's let's be clear. <laughs> well, you're still here. <laughs> I felt and was told, maybe I've got the order wrong, that any kid that's on television at that age is going to be in those magazines. So I never really took it personally in sort of the sort of the junk food positive encouragement mm-hmm. that 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 one might. I just saw it as kind of a kind of a cool quirky fringe benefit but I, I didn't see as like yeah damn right I'm I'm it <laughs> although I you know I, I I will admit I thought I was pretty badass at that at that age I think most kids do I mean I, I see some old tape of me on a talk show or whatever it is and I'll just <laughs> always just be just repulsed by how <laughs> how how fearless and cocky and <laughs> and confident I was back then I I guess every kid is you know you think it's it's all going to be unicorns and rainbows your whole life well but for a while though it was because wasn't it right after after that now you get your first show of your own this is NBC it's your move it didn't last for yeah. all that long but that was the first time you're the the man yeah. on a show yeah and Again, you're you're still kind of in a bubble. I mean, I'm I'm living at home. You know, I'm 14 years old, and and my mom and dad are are my manager, which you know is probably another podcast we could do about that. <laughs> but I'm still just that that just felt like a natural offshoot of Silver Spoons. That character on Silver Spoons was was kind of a character that you that you love to hate. It was really well written by the that writing staff, and and it it kind of created its own kind of group of followers and fans and and while it wasn't a spin-off they they did create a character that still had you know some swagger to him and and some some mischief and and that's what it, it's your move was and 
yeah, as you said, it didn't even last a full season, but it it did sort of put me firmly on the radar mm-hmm. at NBC, and that uh, went into Valerie. And Valerie, why did that have so many different names? At one point, it's Valerie. Then yeah. I guess when she left, it's something else. And yeah, it was Valerie until Valerie Harper left the show, and then when she left the show, it briefly became known as Valerie's family because. Sandy Duncan came in as our aunt, mm-hmm. right? The father's sister. And then it became the Hogan family mm-hmm. and then became the Hogans. Oh, and it switched networks too. It went to CBS at the end. That probably precipitated the final name change, I'm gotcha. guessing though. So how does it happen that at just 18, I think younger than anyone else in the history of the DGA, you wind up directing three episodes of, I think at this point it was the Hogan family, but like this really goes back that far to to the age of 18, your interest in, or it sounds like even before that, the interest, but this was when you first directed on TV. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I think I was speaking to Bob Boyette, one of the executive producers about having someone direct an episode, whether it be a, a a crew member or something, I forget, but, mm-hmm. you know, it's not uncommon for producers to talk to the cast about who they're comfortable with and who should we have back and who should we bring on. And and it was during the course of one of those conversations where he said, you know, do you think you might want to direct one? And I was like, yeah, sure. <laughs> that sounds cool. And so, uh, yeah, we were, we were working. I remember one day we were rehearsing in the middle of the week and the stage phone rang and, and someone answered it and they said, uh, Jason, it's the DGA for you. They, they want to talk to you. So I picked up the phone and they said, we just want to, we want to let you know that, uh, I don't know if you know this or not, but you're the, you're the youngest director ever that, that you'd beat <laughs> Malcolm Jamal Warner by a couple of months and Spielberg by like three months that's or whatever the hell crazy, it was. Huh? I, I don't know, but it was, I just remember those two names and thinking, wow, that was, that's pretty cool. That was pretty cool. And I don't you, know if it still stands, but it was an intimidating phone call to get for sure. And were you just, in terms of the actual process, you were hooked or was that the root of what today lives on through Ozark and everything that you yeah. really wanted to keep doing that? I do remember that the most exciting and gratifying part of it was staying late with one of our best and favorite director, uh, Rich Carell, mm-hmm. stayed with me on the stage till like midnight the the night before camera blocking day, which is typically on a Thursday mm-hmm. for a Friday show. So he stayed at the at the stage with me till like midnight the Wednesday night and helped me block camera block my script, which is basically in those days it was just three cameras. And so you've got A camera, B camera, and C camera moving left to right across the stage. And you, you basically decide on what line each one of those cameras is going to point to a different character so that when that character starts talking, the camera's already pointed mm-hmm. at them. So it's, a, it's just a, it's a choreography of mm-hmm. things. And, and oftentimes, a director will take longer with that camera blocking day, that day being Thursday, to give all the cameramen and the dolly grips their notes about what the choreography and, and, and order of all those assignments are. They'll take longer doing that than the cameraman and the dolly grip and the camera coordinator need, mm-hmm. you know, because they do it every week. Mm-hmm. And as an actor, or certainly somebody that was as interested as I was into, you know, absorbing the rest of the process, I just always would see kind of their frustration, like, boy, if they could do it on their own, right. we'd be out of here by lunch. <laughs> and so that was my goal was to was to really come to come to work that next day prepared enough to 
really give everybody a short day because right. it's really just a technical day. And we did get out by lunch for the wow. first time ever that next day. And I, re- I just remember the the attaboys that I got from you know these seasoned technicians, mm-hmm. these these cameramen and dolly grips and focus pullers and the camera coordinator, really looking at me like you know wow you you really did your homework and you you, you did good kid yeah. like that was something that I'll just never forget and it did fuel a lot of the further observations that I would make to different departments of what they were doing every single day. And certainly as I, as I went into single mm-hmm. camera work, it becomes a little bit more diverse, a little bit more complicated than the, the filming of a, of a situation comedy where you're dealing with just a proscenium. You know, a single camera, obviously you're moving beyond mm-hmm. that uh, that line and it just becomes different. So, But as with Ozark, you're also at that point directing yourself, right? Yeah. Yeah. And again, that part was and and continues to be, fortunately, a, a really comfortable and efficient thing for me because it is one less actor that I need to direct. Mm-hmm. It is it is, you know, for, for better, or for worse. That actor, that guy is reading my mind mm-hmm. on every take. <laughs> he's he's making just a very subtle adjustment to facilitate that camera move like he's holding his line a little bit longer waiting for that dolly to finish its move across the track or he's he's no longer shadowing that actor when they enter that room because he just noticed that there was a shadow there so he's putting his weight on his upstage foot or whatever like these are these are notes you might forget to give to an mm-hmm. actor but i having a great seat to watch this process by being in the scene mm-hmm. I'm remembering all these things that I would like to change in the next take, and I can just immediately move on to talking to you about how I'd like for you to think about maybe doing a little bit something different on that line. Mm-hmm. Or so it's I I really enjoy it. It gives me it gives me two hands on the wheel to to affect a, a much more specific and sometimes narrower target tonally. If I'm the person you're looking at and listening to, as well as the person that's making a lot of the decisions behind the camera. Interesting. Yeah. So you started now for the first time getting into directing at 18. That's, you know, the end of what most people regard as childhood. When you look back at that whole childhood career that started, you know, eight years earlier and would continue beyond that, I think you said your dad was your manager until you were 20. Mm hmm. How do you regard it? Was it? Do you look back and say this was a happy, fun time, or it was a stressful time? That's speaking professionally, but personally, did it complicate things to basically be represented by a family member, and at least according to one account that I had come across, essentially supporting the family mm-hmm. along with your sister? Yeah. Like, does that put stress on a kid? Yeah, yeah, it does, and and maybe saying supporting was would, was overstating it. I mean, certainly, my mother and father were making money for sure. But obviously, when you compare it against, you know, pulling a percentage of what a network rate would be to, you know, two people that are on network television series, you know, that's all of those incomes combined afforded us a different way to live. Mm-hmm. And and were Justine and I to stop working, there would have been an uncomfortable adjustment. Mm-hmm. So supporting would be to overstate it. My parents worked their nards off for, mm-hmm. you know, their, their whole lives. It was complicated, but also beneficial. And, you know, I can go down the list of the pros and the cons of it. Generally speaking, the the cons were the added reality of if you don't maintain a C-grade average, your work permit will not be renewed and therefore you will not be on the show and therefore you will have to make that financial adjustment to your living Mm -hmm. situation. So that was sort of real easy math. 
So when you take midterms and finals and there's such a huge effect over your grade and this work permit's getting renewed every six months, it's, you know, if I fail that test, it's not just a slap on the wrist from a teacher. It's people out of work and us having to move. So that wasn't lost on me. But as I said earlier, the added responsibility and and deference paid to me as a, as a young kid by adults mm-hmm. really kind of filled my bucket, yeah. you know, and, and made me feel like I was a, a smart guy, a good guy, uh, somebody who could execute things that maybe other kids my age might not. Whether that was true or not, I... It was a, a great source of self-esteem yeah. for me. Yeah. And then on the on the sort of the, the the domestic side, you know, going to school, you know, the pros and the cons were, yeah, some of the pros were like maybe that girl that wouldn't talk to me before might talk to me now. Mm-hmm. And of course, it's still up to me to, to get a second conversation right. with her by not being boring. But, <laughs> you know, the, the barrier to conversation was broken a bit. Right. But the jocks would pick on me a little bit more because there's there's this this dude from TV that just showed up in February into our school year, and he's now talking to that girl that I was talking mm-hmm. to three months ago when he was on the set. Where the hell did he come from? Right. So there was some animosity there. and and But who didn't have a challenging time in junior high? So all of it is was great and fine. Yes, it was challenging many different moments in, in my career, and I'm sure is not over yet. You know, it's a, not a predictable way to earn a living, and, right. and I think that's part of the reason people are attracted to it. I certainly yeah. am. I believe just before you would have graduated from high school, along comes Teen Wolf 2. This mm. is the first movie. And then basically you've said that there was, I, I guess, after the cancellation of the Hogan family, uh, again, I'm, we're maybe looking at 1991-ish, something like that. Yeah. I guess you were 20 and things start to dry up a little bit. Yeah. It doesn't look like you ever stopped acting, but it just seems like the yeah, pace. Slowed. Yeah, it went a little bit more into sort of working actor yeah. tempo, which uh, again, I, 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 looking back, was very, very fortunate that there was even that. Mm-hmm. But it was in comparison to what I had been sort of, you know, weaned on. I got, you know, I, I was, I was the rat, you know, that was <laughs> the, whatever they were putting in the water. Right. Like that, that's what I was drinking, right. you know, for. 10 years and and those are a very informative 10 years and and you sort of try on a bunch of different suits to wear and I'd picked one that needed the consistent employment and adulation and money and all that sort of junk food that I didn't know was junk food at the time so there was a big adjustment during my 20s to kind of make a friend of of reality and practicality and the unpredictability of the business. And that happened at the same time I was kind of catching up for lost time of being a kid where I didn't really get to play a lot. And so I was doing all the things that a 20 or 20 to 30 year old does for playing mm-hmm. at a time when I was also dealing with the frustration and the and the doubt and the insecurities of what not working in this business will, will bring. So that was a really challenging 10 years, not such that, you know, I, I don't want to paint a picture that things ever got dire because... There are some very legitimate cases of people, you know, finding themselves in a bad place. But you could see how a person who had been a child star could oh, go off the doubt. off the rails. Without a doubt, yeah. yeah, it's it's a really really 
difficult transition in the in the best of circumstances, mm-hmm. and and I would count myself as the best circumstance mm-hmm. whereby I was doing a pilot every year. Right. I mean, like the carrot was right there, and I got a nice big bite of it too. Like I, you know, I was getting paid to do these pilots, right. and and the you know the deals I was signing, you know, were go to to series like they were looking good. So mm-hmm. I had the opportunities to still kind of get that little boost where boy, it's not over yet, right. but it was still unnerving and frustrating, and, and it, was, it was unsettling. I didn't know what the future was going to be. Was the rest of my career going to be anticlimactic? And the town was a entertainment tonight town, and, yep. and if you're not on that every few weeks, Jesus, what's wrong with you? Mm-hmm. Or, you know, you go to a party you want to get invited to, and people are saying, well, what have you been up to? And you keep saying uh, nothing, and, and, and so it was... It's a bit stifling here mm-hmm. if you're not doing what you had been doing. Right. It's fine if you're still making a little bit of progress on trying to get there, but right. if you've come from a place of some kind of altitude right. and, and now you're constantly having to make excuses for you know, what your plan is for the next ascent, it just gets a little exhausting, certainly for a kid that didn't really have the, the coping mechanism for that. And you've said in, it was in those years, maybe, as would be the case with probably a lot of people at, at that age, but just booze and drugs and whatever. Now, would that, I wonder if what came first, the chicken or the egg? Do you yeah. think that that was causing you to work less, or was that the result of you working less? Yeah, that's a, that's a really, that's a good question, and, and the, the fair answer is I'm not Sure, but I will tell you that when I got sober, mm-hmm. things really took off. Mm-hmm. Now I didn't get so and sober. I, I I shouldn't use that that word so so freely. There there are people that are that are militant about sobriety where they don't even use mouthwash. It's got alcohol in it. So mm-hmm. I want to be fair. But when I stopped doing you know drugs and drinking, it was a year after we had been doing Arrested Development. So. It wasn't like, you know, I stopped all that stuff and then I got arrested. I was I was doing arrested, but arrested had become something that I saw was providing me an opportunity to hit this reset button. Mm-hmm. And I've got uh, some some capital here that I don't want to misuse yeah. and disrespect. And I also met the woman that I'm still in love with and married to. And so the fact that I had a job to wake up for, a wife that that had the clarity of not normalcy because her dad is Paul Anka. And so she <laughs> certainly had a, a, right. a, a perspective on what this business is and what it can be. She just had a, had a, had a, a much more measured perspective as, as, you know, our better halves usually do. The combination of those two things was just, was perfect. Right. I say that because I understand how some of my friends still to this day that I used to party with don't have that job to wake up for mm-hmm. don't have that that woman that they found or whatever partner that they found that that they that that really kind of helps them see their best parts if they don't have any reason to wake up at seven in the morning then why not keep the party going all night because right. I can sleep all day tomorrow like I get that and yeah. I, and I, I sympathize with that so I was really lucky that I had some things to focus on that worked in concert with an instinct that I already had to start to slow things down because I'd basically caught up all right. that sort of that hedonistic right. impulse and the catch up to playing basically I'd, I'd leveled things out over those 10 years and you met your wife before before the arrested audition? Yeah, yeah. yeah. Oh, yeah. Like yeah, yeah, well no, before we were, or just? Yeah, yeah, well before. In fact, I, I met her probably when I was 19 or 20. Oh, wow. But we started dating, 
a few years before Arrested Development. I, I remember as, as things would start to come my way, certain certain projects that I, I would sort of scoff at still because I was living in some sort of semi-diluted notion of who I was or what my position in the marketplace was. And of course, she had the perspective of like, no, you're not that great. <laughs> she was like, no, no, you're reading for that. Right. And and that turned into a couple of jobs that really were beneficial. I'm, I'm glad that she gave me that perspective. So how did Arrested first cross your radar? And when it did, you know, did you immediately realize that it had the, the potential to be something special or was it just to you and another potential job at that point? Working backwards, I did realize that it was something special because the single camera was just kind of coming into to style mm-hmm. and I certainly had a lot of multi-camera baggage on me, but multi-cam had become uh, unfashionable and, and I knew I was carrying a lot of that. And so I was surprised when they allowed allowed me to come in and audition for this because not only was a single camera but it was also kind of mockumentary and it it had the pedigree of of imagine it had ron howard narrating it there was a a piece of paper on the front of the script that said anybody who is interested in sort of the the fringes of a double banger or or a triple banger or or a pop-out trailer or all these sort of you know the, the things that fancy actors would want in their perk package don't bother reading for this because this is going to be this is going to be basically it's going to be punk rock like mm-hmm. there's going to be no marks on the floor there's going to be no lights this is going to be news gathering basically and we're not we're not fucking around was was the yeah. was the sort of the spirit of it in not a shitty way but just like this isn't your your dad's sitcom right and so I thought, well, they're never going to see me for this. But but I guess Mitch Hurwitz told me that I, I'd read for him for a multi-camera show, uh, a pilot, a few years earlier. And Did you remember this? I didn't, yeah. but he said that I did a really good audition. He didn't end up going with me, but he just remembered that I was good in the audition and thought that I'd be good for the part. So mm-hmm. he ended up seeing me for that. But the way the audition originally came my way was I had been with Lee Brillstein at ICM for years and years and years, and we had some great success, but we had just parted ways about three months before this audition for no no reason that she she bears any blame for, but I just wanted to kind of shake things up. And, and she called me and she said, hey, um, I noticed that you're not on the sheet for this, that you haven't been seen for Arrested Development, and I don't know if your new agents are aware of it, but you should uh, you should ask them to pursue it for you because I think you'd be really great in that part. I mean, it was such a generous yeah, thing for her nice. to do after we'd, we'd parted ways for after so many years. And, so I mentioned it to my agents. They mentioned this this front sheet of this script and said, I, I'm not, I don't know if it's going to be the right fit for you. Plus, Fox is never going to pick this thing up. If you want to read it, I'll send it to you. But it's, it's going to be difficult. There's a comedic tone to this mm-hmm. thing that is not today. Mm-hmm. And I said, well, sounds pretty cool. Yeah. I'd love to. So I read it. Yes, please. I'd love to go and see if they'll see me. They said yes. I had scheduled for the following day another show that Mitch Hurwitz was was producing, a more traditional multicam mm-hmm. show. And after the audition for him for Arrested Development, he followed me out of the room afterwards. And, and he said, hey, hey, so listen, that was great. Good job. I said, thank you. Thanks. Thanks. I, I really like it. He goes, yeah. He says, you're supposed to come in tomorrow for that other thing, right? And I said, yeah, yeah. He said, right. But this, right? I said, yeah, yeah, I, I love this show. He said, yeah. No, listen, don't come in for that thing tomorrow. 
And I was like, okay. He said, yeah. I said, I don't want the network to see you. I said, okay, I, I got you. I think this is this is good, right? He says, yeah, yeah, no, no, good, good. I said, okay, great. And he had to run back in for, to right. read somebody else. But I remember like flying down to yeah. my car and calling my agent and saying, I, I, I think I just got some good feedback from this thing. And Do you remember what the audition itself had entailed? Well, it was certainly a scene from the pilot. Mm-hmm. I don't remember specifically which one it was, but I do remember just guessing, you know, guessing what it is based on reading the whole script, what kind of lane my character, Michael Bluth, needed to fill in order to ground the in- incredibly <laughs> eccentric, in a good way, the other characters right. were, and, and to try to provide some kind of a, a counterbalance to that. Yeah. And, and that was, you know, the genius of his, of his construct. You have said in another profile that I read, quote, with the characters that I'm really drawn to, I am the audience, close quote. And then separately, quote, I just don't want to be a character actor. I don't want to be the guy that explodes and does a bunch of acting. I like to be somebody who's a little bit more of a tour guide for the audience and observes those people that are doing a bunch of acting, close quote. Was that the case before Arrest Development or was that as a result of finding a role that was essentially yeah, that. No, it's, that's a, uh, no one's asked me that. You're right. It's Arrested. Mm-hmm. Arrested Development w- was, it was my sense of humor at that time. Mm-hmm. I think earlier I was either by virtue of doing a lot of multicam, you know, studio audience stuff, I had really enjoyed developing this sort of, you know, performance style of comedy mm-hmm. as opposed to acting style yeah. of comedy. And I, I don't mean to be too cute with the with the terminology there, but for interests of, you know, being brief. But, you know, when you're doing single camera comedy, you're, you don't have to throw to the back row because the camera's right there. With multicam, because you're dealing with that proscenium and, and you are dealing with an audience, and in fact, hearing a laugh track, there's a either a conscious or subconscious kind of shared wink with the audience, and, and, and things are bigger. But my mother is British, and she was always very dry and sarcastic from that culture, and that really was my sense of humor underneath all of that stuff. And once Arrested Development happened, and specifically Jeffrey Tambor's mm-hmm. comedic tone and sensibility, once I saw that that was what we were doing mm-hmm. and that it was okay to do that, basically do much, much less, right. think instead of act, right. like the camera's close enough to see your wheels turning, right. that was the level of specificity and subtlety that was really something that I was wanting to do and, and feeling like I could do at the time. And that runs kind of parallel to being the straight man, right. being the audience, being the person that is processing and and perceiving the things that the audience is being shown. And it, it also runs in concert with my draw to be a director, you mm-hmm. know, the person whose job it is to shape an experience for an audience. And so what I was saying earlier about having two hands on the wheel, being the person in front of the camera, right, the actor, mm-hmm. and also a person behind the camera mm-hmm. that's kind of holding the wheels, you're able to really hit a much narrower, finer, more specific target, which is that more subtle, more central character and work. And so over the years since Arrest Development Season 1, we're now about to have Season 5, they have been intermittent, and in between there's been a lot of movies, and it seems like in many of those instances, and I'm going to bring up a few, and this is not in any way a critical observation, but just there's been a kind of a through line of people going to you for essentially a variation of the of the straight man, right? Yeah, yeah. And I just wonder, I'm going to mention again, like I, I think the switch, 
horrible bosses, identity thief, not the changeup where I think because they're they're that's kind of the one outlier, and and in a way it's almost just. But seems to subvert that because you're the but guy. the way into that yeah. character right. was born from me starting as the normal guy right. who then pisses in a magic fountain right. and becomes a crazy guy. Like that was right. that was the way I could get there. Right. So when when you have people repeatedly coming to you to do a variation of this thing that you do very well over those years, has that been gratifying or frustrating? It, it was never frustrating. It, it's actually a, a large part my own doing. I mean, I turned down more opportunities to be sort of the antagonist as mm-hmm. opposed to the protagonist to oversimplify it. More opportunities than certainly my wife is comfortable with me <laughs> doing. I mean, she wants to see me, you know, light my hair on fire, right. you know, get an accent and a limp and get on with it. But because of my creative, pardon the term, passion to mm-hmm. do what it is I just described, mm-hmm. which is kind of being that that person that's kind of four-walling it for you, I've become much more cynical about about the other, the quote acting, yeah. the the morphing into a different person, the the ask one makes to an audience to pretend that I'm not this guy, I'm actually that guy. And while I understand and respect the creative effort and challenge of that, and I don't take any anything away from actors that really get off on that, I spent a lot of years with that. In yep. fact, I thought I, you know, the the goal was to be Lon Chaney Jr. Right. Like, you know, and and then it was like, well, all right, then I guess I'll just be Robert De Niro or right. Dustin Hoffman or Al Pacino. Like that was that was a concession <laughs> to to be those guys. And then ultimately, you know, as I got older and and less, you know, less eleven years old and twelve years old, <laughs> I sort of discovered who I was just as a person, mm-hmm. and and then ultimately discovered what I wanna what I want to be creatively and professionally, and and. It's it's become this. So, again, I don't take anything away from actors that like acting, yeah. but I am really attracted to something different, mm-hmm. and I use that lane, that job, that role of acting to help facilitate that, which is to, again, pardon the phrase, but shape that experience for the audience. And being the person that you most relate to right. affords me a bigger lever to pull for that. And it is amazing how much you can communicate and connect uh, and sort of resonate with an audience by doing relatively little in the sense of not being a showy, you know, mm-hmm. capital A actor. And to that point, I, I don't know if you've ever come across this, but when I was prepping, I came across a website that is devoted to, quote, the JBF, close quote. Have you heard about this? No. The JBF is the Jason Bateman face, as in <laughs> the face that you make when you're processing stupidity that cracks people up, and they literally have made gifts of yeah, you this, doing this. So this is this is me listening to somebody be an idiot. Yes, Got and it. so they have figured out the commonalities in this, and and they oh they've they've broken it. There's they've sign, broken it's it down. There's an equation. I'm going to give it to you. There's probably a blink in it. Adopting a slower than normal blink. <laughs> <laughs> Holding your eyebrows up a little higher than usual, closing your mouth firmly, <laughs> pausing before saying anything. And it was great because they actually have the visual oh evidence. And I thought it was it's it in a way is a microcosm of what we're talking about, where, you know, that is probably a physical manifestation of what anyone else is thinking when they're seeing the insanity around your right. characters. Yeah. So. Yeah. I'm and look, it's a it's it's something that 
it's not the flashier part ever. I mean, that character, that role gets gets his or her laughs. Yeah. But it's not the person you're shelling out your money to go see. Like, uh, you know, I mean, I'm not being overly humble here. Who's going to go see a Jason Bateman vehicle? You know, you go see a Will Ferrell vehicle, and I would die to play Will Ferrell's straight man. Right. Now, Will Ferrell would still sell tons of tickets and be incredibly funny without a straight man. But with one, it just allows kind of the, I'm going to make myself sick with these analogies, but the clap becomes louder because yeah. you've got two hands there yeah. as opposed to just, you know, waving around one crazy hand that right. can get you your last. But you, it is a two-part equation, and the straight man is kind of hard to find mm-hmm. because not a lot of people want to do it or they might press because they want seven laughs instead of three. Well, it was always Dean grading against Jerry, right? Yeah. That was the whole, I think that ended up causing friction in their relationship. That, yeah. But anyway, I yeah. it's so interesting to, that you've, you know, that you've thought about it as much as like in this kind of, well, you know, thought through way. And I wonder though, how does it affect improv? I think improv was a big part of Arrested Development, right? Do you just just by being the character for a while and kind of you can stay within the character and still be the like it's a complicated way of just saying like how much improv was actually a part of Arrested Development not a lot and the writing is everything it's got its reputation to be it's very well earned I mean those scripts are incredibly well written and need no plussing from Stingbats. Having said that, the style of the show is very kind of deconstructed. It right. is it is news gathering. It is a it is a documentary, or or it was supposed to be mm-hmm. sort of in its original format. So one is supposed to be finding your thoughts and overlapping, and it's supposed to be messy. And if somebody makes an entrance, the camera then finds them as opposed to the camera being ready for that entrance. And so there is inherent in there a messiness that that going off of script can, mm-hmm. can help facilitate. So there's plenty of messing up the front and the back of lines and and then certainly once you've got the first few takes done as written then inevitably you know we'll end up being idiots that but (laughs) not a lot of that usually outdoes what's written and as somebody who had come of age in multicam was it a adjustment to not have an audience laughing when you tell a joke or being a part of a joke or something crazy happens like or, or and just to not even have the continuity that you would have with multicam? Was that a jarring thing? It wasn't a jarring thing. It was just a completely different thing. And as I said, something that I was really excited by, Mm -hmm. which was there's a laugh that you can get when there's no audience there, but there's a camera there by not winking. Mm -hmm. It's a quiet thing. It's a shared thing with with an audience member that you don't see, you don't hear, and you're never going to meet. It's a real sort of private kind of line of communication that you have through that camera into that TV onto that person at the, uh, on the couch. There's anonymity to it. Mm-hmm. There's more anonymity. Mm-hmm. Whereas with the studio audience, it is not only implied, but it, it's there. I mean, you hear, you have to hold for till they're done laughing. Mm-hmm. So you there's, a, there's an extra energy that they bring that you need to infuse your mm-hmm. performance with. And it's a different thing. It's a different thing to write. It's a different thing to perform. And it's really exciting. I still think that an actor on a multicam sitcom is the best job in the business for many, many reasons. Mm-hmm. But my style of, of humor, I think, is better suited 
for single cam at this moment, but mm-hmm. uh, maybe I would. I haven't done any studio audience comedy for I don't know how long, and it would probably be like visiting an old friend again yeah. and, and want to hang out a bunch. And you're you'd be open to that. Yeah, yeah. yeah. In fact, Jimmy Burroughs called me to do a little something on the this new incarnation of Will and Grace a few months back, and I just I couldn't. I think I was in Atlanta doing Ozark, mm-hmm. and but God, the the. The 12 hours it took me to kind of check the schedule and see if there could be... I mean, mm-hmm. I i wore it. I mean, I tried it on, and I was going to do it in my mind and just got really giddy yeah. about just the idea of not only, you know, doing that job in front of an audience again, but specifically with those people, too. Yeah. It would have been a real privilege. To put a button on the arrested stuff, I just want to ask you, the show was obviously was and, and you know, remains beloved by critics and the TV community... One Best Comedy Series Emmy in 2004 was nominated several other times. You got a Golden Globe for the first season. The people that watched it loved it, but it could never get massive numbers. And you guys, I think, every year lived in fear that this is not coming back the next year, right? Yeah. So what was that about? Why is that? I mean, I don't know. I think smarter people would probably give you a more accurate answer. But my instinctual answer is that it was on a broadcast network at the time when broadcast networks were still the dominant vehicle by which you got your television. Mm -hmm. And as a result of that, your audience was populated by a larger number. Your obligation being on a network show was to provide a populist piece of entertainment. Mm -hmm. There was a specificity to what Mitch did with the writing that was counter to a populist delivery, mm-hmm. you know, and I think we probably got the number that was right for the show. And I'll bet you that the number is the same on Netflix. Mm-hmm. I don't think that show has the necessary rounded corners mm-hmm. that lends itself to populous numbers. Mm-hmm. You know, Fox, rightly so, you know, they're selling ads based on how many eyeballs they get. And if they're only going to get 4 million people for this, but 8 million people for that, well, we're going to put the 8 million people show on so we can get double our ad rates. I mean, I get it. I don't think it had anything to do with more than that. And when Fox pulled the plug after all these years of wondering if that was going to happen, did you ever imagine that it would be revived anywhere else, let alone Netflix? Yeah. I mean, well, immediately there was a conversation with, I don't think I'm making any news here. I think it, I think it was known at the time mm-hmm. that we were talking with Showtime, mm-hmm. but that there were some mechanics in the deal that I wasn't privy to that mm-hmm. it didn't make any sense there. And then a few years later, it, it, it happened at Netflix. But the network or channel landscape was starting to become fractured enough where I thought it would probably is probably pretty reasonable that there would be a station that their goal is is only to get that three or four million yeah. you know person audience right. and that that's plenty and that it would make sense I wouldn't know what the what the license fee would be on something like that and would that be able to accommodate the the cast salaries or the production mm-hmm. budget but that wasn't for me to figure out and yeah. all I knew is that I loved doing it and loved yeah. all those people and and was an eager participant right. you know listening to all the conversations about it. When you were starting out, film was considered the place you wanted to be. That was the, I think, right, the the kind mm. of ultimate place you could end up. Now I think it's kind of flipped to TV as the coolest place to be in a way. But as that was changing, you were doing a little bit of both. And I just wonder, I wanted to ask you about the, the Reitman 
movies there, Juno and Up in the Air. I think Juno is one of the best movies of this mm. century, and you were great in it. And it's actually different than a lot of these other parts, I think, that we've talked about in the type of straight man versus others. It's very different. And same also with another one that I think did not get the appreciation that I, I remember it feeling it deserved. I don't think it got a big release, but Disconnect, that was very different mm-hmm. than any of the things we've talked about. Do you approach picking roles in film any differently than TV? We've talked a little bit about just the commonalities, but like, how does a Juno enter the picture? That was something that I recognized the, pardon these, throwing you a lot of shitty terms, but no. the, the texture and the nuance in that, in that script and in that project, certainly the way that he was talking about doing it, certainly I would love to be a part of. I mean, it's, you know, we all have that inside of us. We're sometimes paid and asked to do other things mm-hmm. that might be less complicated, but sure, I'd love to play that part. I'd love to be a part of a film that that is striving to succeed in multiple areas. And so that was fantastic to be a part of that. I, I don't think any of us saw the kind of reception that that was going to get. Which includes, I mean, and you've talked about this in other interviews, I saw a Best Picture nomination. You've, you've been in movies that made eight, nine-figure, you know, profits mm-hmm. here, but this, maybe it wasn't commercially, it, it did very well commercially. It's not of that level, but to be in a Best Picture Oscar nominee probably yeah, has crazy. an effect, right? Yeah, that was a real mind-blower to, 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 to go to the Oscars. Yeah. was, you know, sitting down there in the pit and, you know, meeting and staring at and shaking hands with some people that I just never really thought I'd ever get the chance to to do that with. Mm-hmm. So that was that was certainly fun. And then, you know, the other roles, the other parts that are, you know, slightly more dramatic or kind of melancholy, uh, you know, that's like I said, I, we all have that mm-hmm. where everybody kind of wakes up quiet and goes to bed quiet. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's a, that's a part of everybody. And I love acting in those parts. I I really love directing those kinds of movies. There's a commercial ceiling on those mm-hmm. on those things and that's unfortunate, but I get it. I think it's one of the really exciting things about what what Netflix provides or some of the other companies that are that are going to be making some movies for for streaming, you know, where they don't have to make that 30 million dollar spend to create a a, a profile and a, and a and a social pressure to go mm-hmm. see something by virtue of the, you know, the the saturation mm-hmm. and the marketing. You know, you just make like a really good movie for 5, 10, 15 million dollars and mm-hmm. you put it up on the site and you market it towards the people that are predisposed to enjoy yeah. something like that and and it succeeds on its merits right so I look forward to to acting in more of those movies mm-hmm. and making those movies but there's another part of of my business that is more commercial and yeah. more comedic and and more studio and I really enjoy doing those yeah. too they're they're sneaky tough to do well and I respect the the kind of exposure that the studios take on financially to, to do those because there is that other marketing component that they are obligated to do yeah. that just demands that the movie really performs mm-hmm. to just hit middle. Yeah. And that's that's tough today because, as you said, television is doing a lot of things well. And the the burden to cross to ask them, uh, somebody to leave their house is pretty high. Yeah. All right. So for the home stretch here, all Ozark, I got to ask you just the thing that most appealed to you initially was the idea that I mean, A, how did it cross your radar, but B, it sounds like the thing that most appealed to you is that you can come in here and direct kind of as much as you want, right? 
yeah, it was uh, great. I'll do it, but only if I can direct all the mm-hmm. episodes and see if they're open to that. I'm sure they're not, and mm-hmm. I'll get out of their way. But just know that you know we're we're really enjoying pursuing a third film for me to direct, and mm-hmm. and and uh, I want that to be something that really challenges me and mm-hmm. makes me scared and some sort of an escalation in, in tone, responsibility, and scope and. I was like, well, Jesus, you know, directing a 600-page movie would would certainly qualify in in all of those things. And so tell them I'd love to talk to them about doing that if Mm -hmm. they're open to it. And, and, you know, they said, no, yeah, well, listen, we appreciate your interest as as an actor, but we are actually at the director stage and we are looking at, uh, you know, I won't tell you the names, Mm -hmm. but, you know, probably – Two or three of the of, from the top five on the feature directing list, wow. and 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 I was like, oh, got it. I'll I'll wait my turn. And to my agent's credit, Michael Cooper, he was like, well, no, no, hang on, let me let me go talk to Modi Wichick over at MRC and and let him know what your hope is. Mm-hmm. And basically, as I can surmise from what you said to me, Jason, what what your idea and your your vision for it is. Mm-hmm. And made an incredible pitch, I guess, to Modi. And Modi said, great, I'll sit down with him. And so Modi came over and, and sat down with me, and, and I basically gave him my pitch. And he said, okay. And off we went, and we, we pitched Netflix, and, and Ted and Cindy said yes. And then as we got into budgeting and scheduling, uh, I just could not create enough time yeah. to prep all 10 episodes. Yeah. It would have been about a 40-week prep would have probably been a 20-month post, and it just wasn't tenable. So I, heartbroken, said, well, I'll do the first two and the last two. Mm -hmm. But as EP on it, I was afforded the the same, not the same, but a, a similar level of oversight that I was looking to challenge myself with and that's been really really rewarding and well the aesthetic is really that runs even through the episodes that you did not direct you set it for the whole series so what i know there were a few references in particular that were i think mainly cinematic but that were important for for this right yeah i'm a big david fincher fan and i'm a big fan of you know, I think Scott Cooper does really, really good yeah. work with a lot of stuff. But specifically, I was focusing on Out of the Furnace. There was a tamped down kind of raw, unsettling environment that he was able to create and maintain throughout that. I mean, the the, the things that he lets actors not do, mm-hmm. lets production designers not do, I think is shows a lot of discipline and taste. And, and Fincher the same way. Mm-hmm. You know, there's, there's a visual component and a musical component, or in this case, sonic component, that... I think sets the table better for an audience to receive the great work that the writers do on this mm-hmm. show and in other things that I think are of, of similar tone. So, you know, there's cinematographers that sort of speak to that as well. Um, Adam Arkapa, I, I really like a lot, and, and certainly like Top of the Lake mm-hmm. was a big influence for me for this show. And in fact, I Peter Mullen was the first person I wanted to cast in the show from his work in that. And there's that palette and that sort of atmosphere and environment that you want to create visually and that hopefully you can maintain as the EP on the show, as you hire the other directors, as you have these tone meetings with these with these directors and and production meetings with all the department heads and and try to make it a 10 chapter movie as opposed to mm-hmm. 10 different episodes right. and, and in the writers room as well you know that was you know that was the mandate like let's make 
let's make a 600 page movie. And, mm-hmm. and if that means episodes two through three are going to be two and three are slow because we're setting up, you know, the second act, well, then so be it. Right. I and mean, we just have to make the assumption and cross our fingers that people are going to bite off three and four hour chunks right. of this thing and, and we'll appreciate that. And then from the acting side of this, is there, have you done anything you think that was as emotionally demanding from you personally? I thought that it was interesting. I love a comment you made to somebody else that, quote, if Tom Hanks had done Philadelphia right off of Bosom Buddies, he would have been laughed at. But essentially, you know, to consolidate the rest of the quote, you, you've you been moving towards this. It's not like it's out of the blue, but it seems like with some of the very emotional stuff in the that you're called upon to do here it feels like it's it is the philadelphia in that progression right i'm not sure i mean i'd, I'd let uh, smarter people like you speak to the strategy of it all but i was not ashamed or embarrassed or nervous about the audience receiving me or accepting me in this part if for no other reason than what we were talking about before which is that sort of the middleman that i always play you know whether it's a comedy or a drama i'm usually the guy that's pretty close to the median you know i'm i'm in a comedy i'm the guy reacting to somebody crazy and in the drama i'm the guy reacting to the person with the gun so this is a character that that occupies that space he's somebody who is sort of a normal guy that's trying to provide for his family and sort of gets a little lazy with his ethics and his work habits or whatever it is and and decides to cut a corner. And we get to watch him try to navigate how all that went sideways. And, And that leaves open moments of loss of dignity and confusion and and also humor because a person is 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 put into a corner and and you're reacting in from a very human and yes audience centric position you know how would you the person sitting at home watching this react and that's that's the part i've i've always asked the audience to accept me as and that part of it felt consistent i'm glad you've push back against what i think is the lazy comparison to just everybody wants to bring up breaking bad which is they're both really good shows yeah. and they have happen to have you know middle-aged guys that kind of cause themselves to fall into yeah. you know problems but it's very different yeah but i th- that trope has been around forever i yeah, mean right. you're always trying to put at the center somebody the audience can relate to mm-hmm. and then put them in a circumstance that is as eccentric or extraordinary as possible so that the audience doesn't feel like they've wasted their money. Well, shit, I, that happens to me every day. You know, they're gonna, there's going to be a blowback from that. Uh, you need to create a, a wild situation, but hopefully the person going through it is somebody the audience can relate to. So I, I think that's very similar in Breaking Bad and Ozark and any other show that's well, out there. Walter comes to like being the right. criminal. That, that's a territory we will not get into if for no other reason than out of respect to that show yeah. and probably for a more uh, sane reason which is that they've already done that and they yeah. did a great job of that and we don't want to be redundant you know there's also the I probably the comparison whether people are aware of it or not uh, sometimes I, I forget about it but that Brian and I also come from television comedy, comedy you know yeah. specifically Fox I mean Malcolm in the Middle was on when Arrested Development was oh, on yeah, and so yeah. maybe people are channeling that as well I don't know but yeah. listen any comparison to that show to him is incredibly kind, mm-hmm. and if we are 
half as good and half as successful as, as they yeah. are. Good God, we would be thrilled. And then just to close, this is a rapid fire. First thing that comes to your mind, three things. There was always talk of an Arrested Development movie. Do you imagine that this is ever actually going to happen? I don't. And for a, for a, you know, I'll spare you the, the longer, more business-centric answer to that. But I, I, we've covered a lot of it here. Yeah. I think just the mechanics of business today that, you know, w- what you've got to bring to sell tickets at a box office is, is something that I don't think Arrested Development occupies. And mm-hmm. I think it's at its perfect place, right. that being Netflix, where, you know, they're making movies and TV shows. And we're kind of doing a bit of both of that with this. This next one is, you know, not the most comfortable to bring up, but you, you guys are about to go out with the fifth season. And we just had a big article that, that Jeffrey participated in, Jeffrey Tambor, in The Hollywood Reporter with my colleague Seth Branovich. He's obviously dealing with some difficult times at the moment. It seems like even amongst the arrested family, there's some trepidation about how to how do you navigate this. There were quotes from folks in that. It's a weird time for anyone in Hollywood right now. Yeah. What's the way forward here? With respect to? I guess, I mean, with Jeffrey, because he's, he's in this season, right? The fifth season. Oh, we were done with the season before any, all, any okay. of this came, came around, yeah. I mean, it just seems a tough position for everybody. For sure. I mean, I... It's complicated for sure when anybody, and it happens almost constantly, where somebody finishes a project and then between the time that principal photography wraps and the, the film comes out, something has gone on in their in their personal life that they have to address when it comes time to promote and market. Look, what Jeffrey is dealing with and what went on is something I have, I have no idea about. Mm-hmm. That is something that only he and the people who uh, he is dealing with on that know about. Mm-hmm. That is a transparent situation. All I know is Jeffrey from Arrested Development. I have no idea about anything else in his life. All I can say is that my time with him has always been some of my favorite time in my life, and I love him deeply. I empathize with what he is going through, what the people on the other side of it are going through. It sounds like a, a really challenging situation for all parties with that, and I wish them all well with it wherever it goes from here. And the final one is just, you know, we've now gone back over a lot of your life and career. And I just wonder if you it's the way you've described arrest development entering the picture in 2003 or whatever was that it was really a turning point. And so what I want to ask you is, had it not come along, what do you imagine you would be doing today? It could be a very, you know, in a way, this is the art art version of the change up. You know, I was really close to literally liquidating what what little I had left putting that cash in a duffel bag and going down to the Tom Bradley terminal and Seriously. looking up at the ticker board. Yeah. Like that last scene in Up in the Air where he's looking right. up at the destination board. But you're not speaking hyperbolically. Like you no, really- I was I literally I really fantasized about that because remember what I was saying about like this town isn't it's an industry town and unless you're comfortable with with your standing in it or the direction your arrow may or may not be pointing, it's a tough place to be. And so I thought, well, I'm so young. I can just unplug and go plug in somewhere else. Didn't have a wife, didn't have kids, mm-hmm. you know, didn't have a career. Right. You know, had a few friends, but, you know, they can come visit me or I can come <laughs> back and visit them. So it was like, it was kind of that, that romantic kind of what a kid deals with when they finish college. It's like, right. well, I can go start life anywhere. Right. And so I thought, well, why don't I go do that? 
then I started to observe Jimmy Burroughs as a director doing multi-cameras. Like, well, why don't I continue pursuing that? What we were talking about with Hogan Family back at 18. Where did you observe him? Uh, just directing different different episodes. You know, I mean, Jimmy was directing everything. And I kind of became a little bit of his apprentice. He had a few of them. I mean, everybody wanted to follow mm -hmm. Jimmy. And his agent at the time, Bob Broder, took me on and, and gave me to Ted Chervin, who was under him. And I was starting to get some some nibbles as a director in multicam. And so I bet you I would have gone that direction and, and become a multicam director, you know, if they would have had me. Now, as we all know, that dried up a bit. Maybe I would still be working, God bless them, over at Nickelodeon and the Disney Channel, where they're making, you know, great multicam shows that thank God, are still employing a lot of the great writers and producers that, that we have from our multicam days in the, in the 80s and 90s. But maybe I'd be doing that, or maybe I would have gotten a different Arrested mm -hmm. Development, because there's a lot of really talented actors, writers, directors, that are still just one job away. It right. really is just one job. And if it is received and embraced by the people in this town, you'll do great. You know, what are the numbers on... Mad Men, mm -hmm. you know, or even Sopranos, you know, it, like, I think Mad Men, like, three million people yeah. would watch that show. And like, that's, but the people in LA were watching that show. Right. People across the country weren't necessarily, right. even Sopranos, or maybe it was eight million or something like that. Like, those aren't network numbers, but LA and New York watched that show. And, and consequently, the people on that show, on those shows, and I could probably list a million more, ended up having really nice careers. And, and so Arrested Development was that for me, and maybe it would have been something else, and, right. and I would have gotten another reset button. But I, I'm forever thankful that it was Arrested Development and that things continue to be fortunate for yeah. me as I knock on wood. Thank you so much for doing it. Thanks for having me. Thanks very much for tuning in to Awards Chatter. We really appreciate you taking the time to do that and would really appreciate you taking a minute more to subscribe to our podcast for free on iTunes or your podcast app and to leave us a rating as well. If you have any questions, comments, or concerns, you can reach me via Twitter at twitter.com slash Scott Feinberg. And you can follow all of my coverage between episodes at thr.com slash the race. Until next time, thanks for joining us.